your flexibility this morning. We decided this morning to uh, not have the service down in the fellowship hall today. Um, and uh, some of you uh, very quickly just adapted to that, and I appreciate that very much. We will not have a service in the fellowship hall for the summer. Uh, one of the reasons I decided to do it today is because last week when uh, Todd and Nate were leading, we had a hard time capturing everything in the camera that's in the back, with the camera that's in the back. Uh, but by the time we reconvene the service downstairs, our new equipment should be in and installed, and we won't have that trouble uh, anymore. Um, I was standing in the back watching people come in, and it, it has, was apparent to me as uh, new and older faces were walking in um, how, it, uh, how much it is a, a good thing and I, how much I appreciate the sacrifice of those of you who regularly sit downstairs for worship to uh, make space in the auditorium for those uh, who are coming that they might feel uh, welcome. Uh, if you start driving in downtown Tucson, if you start in your car in downtown and you drive about 30 minutes north, you will come to what looks like a massive greenhouse. It will be a building that will be uh, the size of two and a half football fields, about two-thirds the size of Grace's property. Uh, it was a building that was built between 1987 and 1991, and despite its appearance, it's not a greenhouse. It is actually a research facility called Biosphere 2. Uh, the Earth is Biosphere 1, and this little self-contained unit is Biosphere 2. And when it was built, there was great promise. Oh, this was going to be the research facility to end all research facilities. It was going to help us solve all of our climate issues. It was going to provide uh, the, a, a basis for uh, international, uh, excuse me, intergalactic space travel. We're going to be able to put a, 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 a space station on the moon, all because of all the wonderful work that was going to happen at Biosphere 2. It's quite a, uh, an impressive facility. It's this big, it's huge, and inside they tried to recreate all of the environments of the Earth. So there's a section that it was made to look like a desert and is like a desert. There's a, an ocean section and they created in this little space tides and waves and everything that happens in the ocean. There's a rainforest section and a prairie and then of course there's living quarters for scientists to stay and to uh, study. Uh, Biosphere 2 has had problems and it's uh, generated a, a good bit of controversy. It's, it's done good work. It hasn't quite lived up to all of its promise, though. They made a discovery in Biosphere 2 that was very interesting to me. One of the things they discovered about uh, the trees that are in this uh, environment. They planted all these trees for the rainforest and, and, and some in, in the other environments. And they discovered that these trees that were in this environment were weak they suffered from a lack of stress wood. Now, you know what stress wood is. Stress wood is exactly what it sounds. Uh, stress wood is wood that a, a tree makes in response to stress. So if you plant a tree in your yard and when the wind blows against that tree, the tree will produce uh, cells that has, have thicker, thicker uh, um, um, exteriors and uh, thicker, uh, what's this, the technical term I'm looking for? Outsides. That's not right. Membranes. Thank you. Uh, the thicker membranes, and the tree will be able to withstand the stress. Stress wood is important in a tree. It helps it to grow tall and strong. It, it's, it's necessary for its, its health. 
For a tree to be healthy, for really any organism to be healthy, it has to experience pressure. It has to experience a stress. It has to experience the tensions that come with life. That's why when you see a, a butterfly emerging from its chrysalis, what is the worst thing you can do? Help it get out. When you see a, 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 a peep uh, chipping its way out of the egg, the worst thing you can do for that little bird is to try to help it get out. It needs the stress for its own health. I mentioned that this morning because we're going to focus our attention on a passage of Scripture where Jesus sets down a stress point for his followers. It's the mission that he gave them. He pushed them by command into a stressful, threatening, and difficult situation. He gave this command originally to the apostles. It's one that we pick up on our own, and if we don't pick it up on our own, we face inevitable weakness and imbalance and uh, trouble. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is where I'd like to direct your attention. You'll find the book of Acts in the New Testament right after the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts chapter 1. And that's where I'd like you to turn. And we're going to look this morning at a very familiar passage. It's a passage that is familiar to us because it is so central to us. Um, this, uh, you've heard this passage before, it's been repeated, yet it's one that I still hope this morning that we feel the, the pressure of a bit. The truth of the matter is that I need to hear what this passage says. You can listen this morning, but I'm my own chief audience as I read this passage. We're going to hold this passage up to us again like a mirror. We need to hear what Jesus says and see our own reflection in it. Let's read Acts 1, verses 6 through 11. You follow along as I read. Then they gathered around him, his, his apostles, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they asked, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Of course, the most familiar verse in this passage is verse 8. This verse tells us what we're supposed to do and why we're supposed to do it. Uh, to do it. And like every passage in the Bible, context is crucial to this command. And you notice in the paragraph that I read, the future is at the beginning and at the end. At the beginning, the question is about the kingdom. At the end, the focus is on Christ's return. These future-oriented boundaries are around this command, and they tell us why followers of Christ embrace this mission. The Bible gives us a lot of reasons why we would talk about Jesus. 
Why we would, to borrow from uh, verse uh, uh, 1, why we would talk about the works and words of Jesus, why we would do that, why we'd testify to other people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Sometimes we speak to others about Christ because they desperately need Him. This is a matter of eternal destiny. Your response, your response to Jesus determines your eternal destiny. And so we speak to people for the sake of love because we love them. Sometimes uh, we witness because Jesus told us to. He commanded us to do so. Here's, here's verse 8. I'm doing, uh, so you, you can say to yourself, I am, I am going to speak about the words and works of Jesus because Jesus told us to do that. Sometimes we do it because the Bible says that when we share our hope in the Lord Jesus with others, our joy is actually doubled. You know, one of the Bible, the, one of the motives that the Bible does not use is guilt. Huh. That's the one we talk about the most. You ought to be doing this. If you're a good Christian, if you love Jesus, this is what you do. Uh, and it feels somewhat like I, we went to a conference on evangelism not too long ago and, and uh, one of the speakers uh, said to us that, that sometimes when Christians talk about evangelism, it's, it's like going to the dentist. You pay, money to someone ha- to, you pay money to someone to have them yell at you about how you're not flossing enough. Guilt isn't one of the motives that's in the pages of Scripture. In this paragraph, the fuel for taking up this mission as witnesses to the works and words of the Lord Jesus is the future. Here, very simply, I put this. We witness about Jesus because He's coming back. We witness about Jesus because Jesus is coming back. And we believe that. We're confident in it. In fact, one of the ways that we show that our confidence is in this fact is that we tell people about Jesus because He is coming back. Robbie Robbins was in the first uh, war in Iraq. He was a, a pilot for the Air Force. And he was surprised one day at the suddenness of it. He had finished his 300th mission. And as his crew landed, uh, returning from that mission... They uh, were, were told they were going home and they were given permission to leave immediately, and they did. They flew across the ocean, they landed in Massachusetts, and then that night, as soon as they landed, they got in the car and started driving. His, uh, his uh, crew members dropped him off at his home in western Pennsylvania. And as they were driving down the street, he was shocked, he was surprised. Hanging uh, across the garage was a banner, it said, Welcome Home Dad. How did they hang this up? No one knew that I was coming home. I didn't even know I was coming home. And there it is. This is, this is what he described what happened to him. When I walked into the house, the kids, about half-dressed for school, screamed, Daddy! Susan, his wife, came running down the hall. She looked terrific. Hair fixed, makeup on, and a crisp yellow dress. How did you know? I asked. I didn't, she answered through tears of joy. Once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us, so we were ready every day. Now, there are three main movements in this passage, and I want to unfold this text by looking at these three main ideas. These are descriptive of the content, the things that I want to... the, 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 main ideas I want to hang my thoughts on this morning. Uh, look here and follow me as we walk through this passage. The first thing I want you to see is in verses 6 and 7, the disciples ask him a reasonable question. A reasonable question. 
This is the question that begins this final discussion that Jesus has with his uh, disciples. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Last week we talked about some of the flavors that the Bible uses to describe the kingdom. The Bible uses the word kingdom to describe several different things that God does, that God has planned. We talked about God's sovereign kingdom because he's the creator of all things. He is the king of all creation. He rules over all things as sovereign king. We also talked about the everlasting kingdom. The prophets, the Bible looks forward to the day when everybody is going to gladly acknowledge that God is sovereign king. God is going to be evidently seen to be all in all. And that great day is is coming. We talked about the spiritual kingdom, how those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have been brought out of the dominion of darkness, Colossians 1 says, and into the kingdom of His dear Son. We are part of a spiritual kingdom. And then we also talked about how the Bible uses the word kingdom to refer to the Davidic kingdom. That is the nation state of Israel with a capital in Jerusalem ruled over by a descendant of King David in the Hebrew scriptures. Now, verse 3 tells us that Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom. So they ask, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And followers of Christ have responded in different ways to this question. Was this a good question that the disciples were asking or not? Was it a question that comes from understanding, they're insightful, Or is this the question that comes from their ignorance? They still don't understand what Jesus is talking about. The disciples could ask a lot of questions like that. Well, John Calvin says there are as many errors in this question as there are words in this sentence. Hmm. Uh, Will you indulge me for just a minute? Just for a moment, I want to give you a little theology lesson. Uh, It's about some of the differences between us and our fellow followers of Christ. And it has to do with this question and how we read uh, this question. You know there are differences between churches, between um, our church and other churches. And our our earnest hope is that all of the differences that we have come from our settled convictions of what the Scripture teaches. And the issue at hand in this passage is about this kingdom and what sort of kingdom there is and how this kingdom might relate to uh, this uh, period in the book of Revelation called the Millennium, where Christ uh, appears, Christ is ruling on the throne in Jerusalem. Well, here's some different positions. There are first followers of Christ who describe themselves as amillennialists. Ah, meaning not, and millennialists. These are people who believe that the church and the kingdom are identical. The church and the kingdom are the same thing. The church is the kingdom. The Davidic kingdom is now manifest in the church. Jesus is sitting on David's throne in heaven. There is no future kingdom for Israel uh, to come. Many of our brothers and sisters in the Sovereign Grace churches or Presbyterian Reformed um, Christians, some who are part of our congregation, are amillennialists. Now, there's another position here known as post-millennialism. Now, the post has to do with when Jesus is, is coming back. Post-millennialists believe that the church is going to usher in the kingdom. The church is going to bring about the kingdom. What the uh, post millennialists Postmillennialists are the most optimistic people in the whole world. 
They believe that the gospel is going to be preached all over the world and people are going to become followers of Jesus and life on earth is going to get better and better and better and better and there's just going to be this 1,000 year period of wonderful peace on the earth. And it's going to be marvelous and glorious and beneficial for all. That will be the millennium and then Jesus will return. Now, post-millennialism was very popular in the United States and in Europe at the end of the uh, um, 19th century, the late 1800s. It was really popular because there were advances in science. Uh, the Industrial Revolution had made life easier for people. Things, things were, were getting better for people generally on the earth. Then there were two things that happened that destroyed people's optimism and their hopefulness for the future. Do you know what those two things were? World War I and World War II. Um, well, there's not many post-millennialists today. There are some, not very many of them. Then there's premillennialists. Premillennialists believe that Jesus, when he returns, he will establish the Davidic kingdom. He's going to come and establish the kingdom uh, in the world. Now, millennialists they look at the question in verse 6, and they hang their heads with dismay. They say, oh no, the disciples, they're mistaken. They believe that the Davidic kingdom is going to be restored. They believe that it's going to come in a moment. They think it's going to focus on the physical descendants of Abraham, the physical Jews. And our millennialists friends read verse 7, and they see Jesus very disappointed because of their misguided question in verse 6. I don't see disappointment in verse 7, though. Jesus is capable of expressing disappointment, isn't he? (laughs) There are times in the Gospels where Jesus says, Oh, you foolish disciples. You're so slow to believe. Don't you understand, he says to them, don't you understand what the Scriptures say? I don't see that level of disappointment in verse 7 there. In fact, what I think is going on is, is here that the disciples are making connections in the Bible. Very, very vital connections. Uh, look with me on, on your sheet. I wrote it out there. Isaiah 32, 15, doesn't it? It's Isaiah 32, 14 and 15 there. Isaiah 32 is a passage addressed to the, 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 the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, the Jews who have the Davidic kingdom. They're the ones who, um, they, they're, they're in Jerusalem, the capital of Jerusalem. They, they have a kingdom. They have a Davidic king on the throne. And Isaiah is addressed to them. And Isaiah says to them, you have disobeyed God. And because of your disobedience, there's going to be desolation. It's going to be awful. Uh, verse 14, the fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, citadel and watchtower become a wasteland forever, the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. And then verse 15 comes, and it, verse 15 says, it's going to end though. This period of desolation, this period of destruction and ruin is going to end. And when is it going to end? It's going to end when the Spirit is poured on us from on high. You notice Jesus has been talking about the Spirit. He said to them, the Spirit is is coming. I'm going to send the Spirit. He's going to be poured out on you. And they they make a very, a a good connection. Isaiah says the Spirit and the Kingdom come at the same time. So they say to Jesus, is now the time for the Kingdom? Is the Kingdom going to come right now? I, I think that they're asking a very reasonable question. 
Now, the theology lesson is over, but what I don't want you to miss in this passage is uh, what this verse, this question, says about the disciples and their understanding of who Jesus is. What did they believe about him that inspired them to ask this question? They saw that Jesus is the subject of all of God's promises. That he's the fulfillment of all that God said he would do. He is the center of all of God's plans. He fulfills every promise. He meets every qualification. He satisfies every requirement that the Old Testament has set down. Their hope is set fully on him. They say to the Lord Jesus, Oh Jesus, you are evidently David's son. You have come, you have died, you rose from the dead, you're promising the Spirit, you're the one. Our hopes, our expectations, everything that we have are centered on you. That's what this question reveals. He's he's the one that that God's people have been looking for for thousands of years. He's, He's the one. What this question reveals about them actually is is that they agree with what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Colossians. Look at this wonderful passage uh, that attributes this centrality to the Lord Jesus. We read this often in worship. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The disciples recognize this about Jesus. That's why they ask this question. Now Is now the time? Because you're eminently qualified to be the king. Is now the time for the kingdom? They're going to need this confidence. They're going to need this confidence in the days that are to come because for Jesus' sake, they're going to risk their lives. They're going to lose their reputations. They're going to lose their comforts. The Apostle Paul writes, um, he says, I have lost everything for the sake of knowing Christ. I mentioned this before when we were going through the the life of the Apostle Paul. He said to us in 2 Corinthians that he was scourged five times, beaten five times for his confidence in the Lord Jesus. Don't you think after you, 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 you preach a message about Jesus and you get beaten for it, don't you think maybe you'd change your strategy a little bit? So, so, you definitely would change it after the second time, right? <laughs> Something I'm doing is not working here. There's got to be a better way to talk about Jesus that doesn't end up in me getting beaten. Don't you think? After the third time, for sure, you would change your strategy. It's time to be a little bit more seeker-sensitive. Let's not be as offensive as, as, as all of that I have been offensive in talking about Jesus. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, better, a better way to do this. Certainly after the fourth time, you would, you would do something else. Figure out some other way to talk about 
Jesus. Those who knew him best, those who saw him with their eyes, who heard him teach, will end up giving him everything. And they're going to do that in the book, and we're going to read this. And I think about that. I think about what they saw and what they heard and what they did in response. And I wonder to myself, is that true of me? Do I esteem the Lord Jesus? Do I see him as that significant? How, how true of that is, is you? How, how true of you is, is that? Verse 8 here in this passage moves us from a reasonable question to an interim mission. An interim mission. Now in verse 7 he tells them that the kingdom and its timing should not be their chief concern. And then he issues this command in verse 8. This is the great commission. It's the charge at the end of every book uh, that tells Jesus' story. Nicholas read it this morning from Matthew 28. Now, in this mission, there are three key elements in verse 8. First of all, this passage tells us what to do. What should we do? You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. That's the theme of this book. It's why the word witness is behind me on this board. It's why the word witness is at the top of your note sheet. Witness is a legal term. Uh, if this were a courtroom, we could call a witness in here and ask the witness to tell us what she saw or what she heard. Um, and, and that person's observations, her observations, would help us determine the facts. Now, I know witnesses can be confused and witnesses can have mistaken eyes. Witnesses can have failing observations. But we ask witnesses to testify in courtroom with the hope and expectation that what they say will help us establish the truth. This is the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. They are to, to spread the news about what they've seen and what, what they've heard. They're to tell about what Jesus did and about what he said and about who he is. They're to talk about what he experienced in their presence. What he told them, what he showed them. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what a witness does. I think this, this verse is actually, it's a word, if you think about it, it's a wonderful reminder to us about the nature of this book that we have. We have in the Bible, we, we can read, we can study eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts. We have preserved for us what Matthew saw, what John saw. Luke accurately recorded what the, those original eyewitnesses saw. When we read these texts, we're reading the words of those who saw Jesus with their own eyes. And these eyewitness accounts, they're old. They're 2,000 years old. But they stand up to scrutiny. That's not actually the, the prevailing view of the Bible in our culture. This is not the message that you're going to hear on CNN or PBS or Fox News or read in Time magazine that, that these are eyewitness accounts. Um, we believe that they are, and you probably won't hear this on those same uh, television shows or read those in the same magazines, but there are faithful followers of Christ 
who with great skill and impressive scholarship speak about the, the validity of believing that this is an eyewitness account. So those, those things are out there. One of those people actually who has done this work extensively is a man by the name of Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. Now, as part of his research, uh, Bauckham interviewed several psychologists about what is called recollective memory. <laughs> recollective memory is a fancy word that means eyewitness accounts. I'm going to recall what I saw. Uh, when you see something that happened and you report on it, your telling of it is different. There are different elements in your telling of it than if you had made up the story or if it was a collective report. I'll give you an illustration here. On Tuesday night, my wife and my oldest daughter were driving through Lancaster and they saw that car accident. The car accident that you maybe read about in the paper or saw on the news. You know, the, the guy who drove his car into somebody's house. Um, somehow he went far into the house. Uh, traffic was blocked. They didn't actually see the accident, but they saw the aftermath of it. And when they both got home, they said, oh, guess what we saw? There was a house. It was a car. It was inside the house. I don't know how it made it there. And they told the story. They told me. They told uh, my other daughter. They told my son. They told about all that they had seen that they had witnessed. Their telling of the story is different than, has a different flavor to it, a different shape to it, than if they had made up the story. And it was different than the telling of the facts that was on WGAL later that night. Eyewitness accounts are different than made-up stories or than uh, uh, compiled historical remembrances. Uh, Bauckham says that eyewitnesses' accounts contain unique elements, consequential events. They have irrelevant details. They're, they speak from a limited vantage point. You can recognize in the way that the stories are told, as a matter of fact, that they've been told over and over and over again. I, I heard the story told to me. I heard the, overheard the story told to my son. I overheard the story told to my daughter. There were, there were common elements in all of the, the, the tellings. Richard Bauckham says, you look at the Gospels and they bear all of the marks of eyewitness accounts. They don't bear any of the marks of made-up stories. And they don't bear any of the accounts of, of compiled, put-together, uh, uh, very heavily edited accounts. This is recollective witnessing. If it's not recollective witnessing, the people who wrote the Gospels are geniuses and we should worship them because of how they put this book together. You will be my witnesses. He says. This is the calling that all followers of Jesus Christ take up. You're supposed to tell people about the words and works of Jesus. This is what we're here to do. This is why the church exists. To proclaim the excellent work of Jesus. That's what we're to do. Now he also tells us in this passage where. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. This verse actually marks the progress in the book, you trace, you're going to outline the book based on this, this verse. In chapters 1 through 7, we talk about Jerusalem. Verses 8 through 10, they take the gospel to Judea and Samaria. Verses 11 through 12, oddly enough, they go back to Jerusalem for a little interlude. And then in chapters 13 through 28, they go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what sort of progress have we made in this task? 
share with you some statistics this morning. Uh, they're a couple of years old here. April 2012. There were, in April 2012, 7 billion, about 7 billion people on earth. About 750 million of those claim Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. So about 11% of the world two years ago. 2.6 billion people, 38% of the world's population, have heard the gospel but have not accepted Christ yet. So 11% are believers, 38% have heard the gospel but are not followers of Christ. That leaves about 50% of the world's population have not heard the gospel and most of them do not have a realistic opportunity to do so. Or here, slightly different perspective. There are 11,646 distinct people groups on the planet. 6,734 of them contain between 0 and 2% evangelical Christians. Uh, that is, 60% of the world's population, uh, among those people groups, there are between 0 and 2% evangelical Christians. And many of those people groups have no churches no Bibles, no Christian literature, and no mission agencies that are targeting them with the gospel. Here's, here's something along, along similar lines. New research that came out last uh, August uh, pertains to North America. One in five non-Christians in North America don't personally know a single follower of Christ. That's stunning. Uh, 13,447,000 people don't have a Christian friend or acquaintance in North America. And if you go to certain religious groups, they get higher. 65% of Buddhists, 75% of Chinese people, 78% of Hindus, and 43% of Muslims in America don't personally know a follower of Christ. In, in North America, those statistics are. Uh, actually, outside the United States, inside the United States, remember, it's one in five. Outside the United States, it's eight in ten non-Christians don't personally know a follower of Christ. I wonder, some of you, you think to yourself, well, you know, a lot of my friends are Christians. I grew up in the church. I, um, I, you know, I don't know any people who, are, who aren't really followers of Christ to, that I get, can fulfill this to. There's a lot of people in North America who don't know a Christian. Go introduce yourself to one of them. Find one. Introduce yourself. Now, the what of this commission is be witnesses. The where is uh, everywhere. And the how is by the power of the Holy Spirit. This witnessing is supernatural work. They're thinking initially about kingdom power. You're going to set up a kingdom now. Jesus has called them to something bigger. He has something bigger in mind. We're going to see this unfold in the book of Acts, how this power works. We're called to a mission that requires supernatural resources and speaking about the words and works of Jesus to everywhere on earth. Our task is to plan and to prepare to engage people in telling everyone on the planet that though God has made them, because we've all turned from Him and, and we have all rejected His authority over us, we are naturally His enemies. We deserve His wrath. But in love, God sent His Son to earth. And he did what we could not do. He obeyed his father perfectly. And then he did what we couldn't, no one could do. He offered to his father a perfect sacrifice. A substitutionary sacrifice. 
paying the penalty for our sins. And our mission is to call people to believe, to turn to Him, to trust in Him, to find life and forgiveness. We are called to be radically committed to calling others to follow Jesus. Now, Tim Keller is a pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and, and he, he describes once conversations that he often has with people, especially those in New York City, about about Jesus. So he'll talk to them a little bit. He'll begin the conversation and, and they'll say to him, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you doing to me? Tim Keller says, I, I say, I'm trying to evangelize you. What? You're trying to evangelize me? You're trying to get me to uh, adopt your view of spiritual reality and convert? Yes, I am. And they say, that is so narrow. That's so awful. Nobody should take their view of spiritual reality. Nobody should believe that their view of spirituality is better than anybody else's and try to convert them. Oh, no, 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 no. Everybody should just leave everybody else alone. And so Keller responds in this way. It took him a while, I'm I'm sure, to, to, to formulate this. He'd say, wait a minute, Um, you want me to adopt your take on spiritual reality. You want me to adopt your view of all the various religions on earth. What you're doing to me, you want me, you want to evangelize me. You want me to have the same view of spiritual reality that you do. You want me to think just like you do, that nobody should try to convert anybody else and that all religions are the same. If you say, don't evangelize anybody, you're trying to evangelize me into your western, white, individualistic, privatized understanding of religion. Now tell me, which one of us is more narrow? He says, narrowness is not the content of a truth claim. Narrowness is our attitude toward the people who don't share our point of view. And actually the Bible calls us to love them, doesn't it? It's interesting, we have this great emphasis in our world on tolerance. Tolerance means that if you don't agree with me, you have to be quiet. Narrowness. Now, verse 8 is one way that we enunciate our mission as a church. Our bulletin has, has another, another way. Uh, it says at the bottom of the first page, cultivating followers of Christ. This is what we do. It's supposed to be part of everything that we do. The elders are talking and, and praying about how we can more effectively care for one another. We've had really good conversations about it. Do you know that our Lord himself told us how to think about our care for one another in light of this mission? What did he say? By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. We have a wonderful Awana club at our church. The goal of Awana is to reach boys and girls with the gospel of Christ. Right? Missions is pervasive. Think about our church and, and about how this mission of being witnesses or cultivating followers of Christ is to pervade everything that we do. Our services, our nursery, our, our bulletin, the way we paint the walls, how we care for the building, how we teach in Sunday school. Teachers, do you have a, an eye in your mind? Oh, Speak about the words and works of Jesus so that everybody on earth can hear. That's what I'm thinking about when I walk into my classroom every Sunday morning. 
We don't exist for ourselves. We, we exist to testify to the works and words of Jesus. Now, verses 9 through 11 gives us a new motivation for this mission, a new motivation for this mission. This is the account of what's called the Ascension. This is an unusual story. Luke is the only gospel writer who records it. He records it at the end of Luke, and he records it here in the book of Acts. Uh, the others assume that it has happened. They give clues here and there. Luke describes it. Now, between what happened here, between Resurrection Day and Ascension Day, 40 days later, um, Jesus has appeared and disappeared to his disciples. I don't know how he did it. The book of John describes it once that he just suddenly was with them. Poof, here he is. And what did he say before he disappeared? Well, that's all for now. I'll see you later. Boom, and he was gone. Or something like that. I have no idea. Did, I, did he? I don't know. I could, I could speculate it would be useless. I don't know. Well, what happened is Jesus is moving back and forth in his resurrected body between the presence of his Father and uh, with the disciples. But now, this departure is different. It indicates this is final. He was taken up in their presence. The text mentions clouds. One commentator said that it appears maybe the clouds came under him and, and he went up in the cloud that then obscured them, him from their sight. Uh, it's a mysterious passage. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that he thinks that the ascension is a harder apologetic issue than the resurrection. Clouds. Clouds are important in the Bible. Um, Jesus, when he was transfigured, clouds appeared. Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, when I come back, you'll see me come with clouds. You should just study of clouds in the Bible. It's fascinating. Uh, this is an eyewitness account. It's unusual, but it's an eyewitness account. Luke says, how many times in that verse, these two verses does he talk about eyes, sight, or looking? They saw this happen. There's much that can be said. And in fact, next week we're going to spend a whole uh, Sunday morning talking about all the New Testament says about the ascension. But I want to show you how does this unfold in the book of Acts. What does Luke emphasize here? This happened, and the main lesson of it is that Jesus is coming back. That's what those two men say. Men of Galilee, why are you staring into heaven? This same Jesus is going to come back just like he left in the clouds. There's vividness here. It's meant to infect us all. We're all supposed to be looking up to heaven because the same Jesus who went is going to come back. Well, there's a vividness to that, but then there's also taking up this mission. In the meantime... Don't be staring in the heavens. In the meantime, get busy and do what Jesus said to do. Because he's coming back. I think it was Martin Luther who said, we should live as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and is coming back tomorrow. Remember this, he's coming back. He's coming back. It's been a long time. It's been 2,000 years. It seems like that's a really, really long time. It's not that long, though, here. <coughs> Follow me for, for just a minute, if you would. Uh, this week, uh, Bill Archibald asked me if I knew any centenarians, if I know anybody who's 100 years old. My great-grandma, her name was Edna Davini, she was over 100 when she died. Um, Ethel Root, many of you know Ethel Root was 100 when she died. That's about as long a life as you can imagine. 
But, but you know people who are 100 or who have made it or are close to 100. Marion Manley was 98 when she died. Let's just think about this here with me for a minute. Someone who died at 100 in 2014 was born when? 1914. And if someone was 100 who was born in 1914, died in 1914 at 100, was born in 1814. Someone who died at 100 at 1814 was born in 1714. Someone who was 100 at 1714 was born in 1614. Someone who was 100 in 1614 was born in 1514, 1414, 1314, 1214, 1014, 914, 914, 914, 914, 914, 914, 514, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, 314, how many people is that? 2014, 1964, 1914, 18, I won't do that again. How many people? 40. 40 people who lived to be 50. Jesus was walking the earth. It's not that long ago. He's coming back. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we testify to the works and words of Jesus because he's coming back. As we move through Acts, we're going to see how this energized the apostles. We're going to see it here, as, 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 and, and our hope is that by the supernatural work of God, He's going to cultivate in our church the exact same boldness and clarity and passion of purpose that motivated these men and women. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Lord Jesus, we speak to you who is our risen Savior, who is seated at your Father's right hand, who is someday going to come back. And, and you will be glorified as the King that you, uh, uh, you'll be lauded in the way that you are worthy of being lauded. You'll be worshipped as the risen Savior, the one who has, has conquered sin and death, the one who punishes all who live in rebellion against you and who shows grace upon grace upon grace to those who turn to you. You will be lauded on that day and that is, that is good, hopeful news for us. Oh Lord, we pray, would you help us in the meantime to be faithful to what you've called us to. Would you build some stress wood into our church in, into the lives of these men and women in our congregation because we embrace this mission of speaking about your words and works. We want to, we want to be faithful. Like the Apostle Paul who gets back up and speaks again. Help us to treasure you with that great confidence. Help us to anticipate your return in a way that would move us forth carefully and boldly and passionately for Christ's sake. Transform our church, God. Use your word to do that. Change us, we ask together, in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Amen.